Hi everyone! After a bit of a break, Finding Fair Health is back with a whole load of new and exciting episodes. And what an episode we have today. I catch up with Dr Bex Fisher, GP and Senior Policy Fellow at the Health Foundation. From a personal perspective, I found this conversation really helpful in getting my head round some of the resourcing challenges and politics in trying to shift the inverse care law at the moment in primary care. This is often complex stuff, and Bex has such a clear way of explaining things. We hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome to Finding Fair Health podcast. I'm really excited about today's episode. Welcome to Bex Fisher, someone who I've been wanting to get onto the podcast for ages, and I'm so pleased to be finally having this conversation. Bex is a GP in a deprived part of Oxford for some of the week, but also is a senior policy fellow at the Health Foundation. Bex has a particular interest in the inverse care law and how we can think about reversing this. She has a rare position in her roles as having both a national and also a frontline lens in all of this. In a recent Health Foundation publication, Bex says, the inverse care law is not inevitable or irreversible. It is a consequence of the failure of policies to align resource with need. And this is exactly why I have Bex on today, to talk about the inverse care law and also how we can think about aligning policy better to where there is most need. Bex, welcome. How are you doing? Rachel, thank you so much for having me. It's funny, I've listened to lots of your previous episodes, really enjoyed them, and it's lovely to be here. Everything just feels a little bit full on at the moment, um, so I hope you're doing okay. How are you actually doing? It's a very kind question. Uh... And a hard one to answer. I think it's changing so quickly. We're recording this just before Christmas seems to have shifted on its axis yet again. I think we, you know, we always knew conceptually that there was a risk of another variant coming out and doing this to us again. And yet, like so many others, I think I was just kind of enjoying life as it had got to be. And now it feels as though it's all changed again. I suppose the thing that hasn't changed that much for me is general practice because we've been so busy for so long now that that just feels like business as usual plus you know a few more vaccines but I'm I'm doing okay thanks still got my head above water good good it's interesting that you use the analogy of head above water because it's kind of similar with the deep end analogy of working at the deep end and really trying to stay afloat and yeah yeah definitely feels a bit like that working in deprivation at the moment and I, I said in the intro that you're interested in the inverse care law and this is where we've started having lots of conversations over the last few years tell me a little bit about the inverse care law and why why you feel it's so important yeah so the inverse care law lots of people will be aware of it I think I first heard about it at medical school a GP called Julian Tudor Hart described it in 1971 and he said the availability of good medical care is inversely proportional to the need for it so in other words in the places where there's the most health need there's less and less good medical care and I was really interested in it back then uh, but I was also adamant that I was going to be an intensive care consultant or failing that probably an A&E doctor and I remember saying that to my director of studies at university and she said to me Bex you've got to go into general practice or public health that's where the people and the politics are that really changes this stuff and I was like no 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 you're actually going to be an intensive care doctor Um, and about eight years later I went back to her and said so (laughs) about those careers in general practice Um, and I think that we in primary care, we're certainly not the only people with responsibility to tackle the inverse care law, and we can't do it by ourselves. But we're in a really incredible position of working directly with people and communities who are on the harsh end of it. And we can also play a role 
in trying to change it. And so in my life in general practice, I'm really privileged to be able to work with people directly. And in my life in policy, I feel privileged to be able to try to do work that shifts the structural factors that determine how we get to give care. And so by that, what I mean is that general practice in areas of high deprivation is underfunded and underdoctored relative to need. So we can do lots to challenge health inequalities, and it's really important we do. But until you resource your systems in proportion with need, health inequalities are probably going to widen. And that's the problem that I'm particularly interested in tackling. Yeah, that's really interesting. And you coming into that with your frontline role as a GP must really pack some credibility, I imagine. I hope that it gives me some credibility. I think my voice is no more or less important than many others. And I'm very aware that many of the people who could say some of the most impactful things about this don't have the platform to do so. Through my policy work, I would hope to build platforms and share platforms that kind of enable and empower voices to to change this. And I think there are things that government could do and could do relatively easily that would really shift the inverse care law. I would like to see a lot of pressure being exerted on them to do those things. And perhaps we can talk a bit more about what they might be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you you meant well. You mentioned the structural facts, like things like underfunding and so underdoctoring. Was, was that was that kind of what you mean? Yes. So I guess if we break down the components of the inverse care law, that might be one way to get at it. So mm-hmm. Julian Tudor Hart talks about need, and I think most of your le- listeners will know that need is very flexible construct in healthcare because of course we don't know the full sum of need there are undermet needs and there are unmet needs but broadly speaking need is much higher in more socioeconomically deprived populations and of course that's not just about healthcare that's about all the factors that make us healthy in the first place um but that does trickle down into healthcare so need for healthcare is much higher in our deprived communities so for example in general practice Um, in this country people who live in the most deprived areas consult on average about 17% more than patients who live in the most affluent areas so that translates to one or slightly you can't really divide a consultation is a one or a two thing isn't it you can't really break it down in the way that it does when you crunch numbers but it what it translates to is a much higher consultation rate in deprived areas Um, And of course, we know that life expectancy isn't equal. People in the most deprived areas on average live for 12 years less um, and will live more of their lives with multiple health conditions, which they've accumulated at an earlier age. So all of that means that the need for healthcare services in areas of high deprivation is higher than in more affluent areas. So what you would logically think is, well, there will be more services. There will be more doctors. There will be more nurses. There will be more money going into general practice in those areas to meet that need. And so what we did at the Health Foundation last year was to look at that and say, well, is that true or not? And when we look at funding, what we see is that it's not true. So once you adjust for the extra need in deprived areas, practices, GP practices in the poorest fifth of areas get about 7% less funding than practices in the most affluent areas. So that's pretty major. 7% is quite a big chunk of practice income, particularly when you think that the income that a practice gets determines, for example, how many staff it can afford to pay. 
or how much it can pay them, so how competitive it can be in the labour market. And so then it's probably not a surprise if we think about workforce, and you will know this better than anyone, I think, Rachel, with all your trailblazer work, general practice in areas of high deprivation is underdoctored. Again, once you adjust for need, there are fewer GPs per head of population in the most deprived areas than there are in the most affluent. So that means that a GP in a deprived area is responsible for, on average, 10% more patients. You've got a bigger list, so you've got more workload. And then, and I'm aware I've been going on for a while now, but if we just think that third really important part of Julian Tudor Hart's definition was about the quality of medical care. So how good is the care that you're getting? And GP practices in more deprived areas, on average, get lower quaff points, have worse CQC ratings, and have lower patient satisfaction scores. Now, I, really important to acknowledge that there are probably some structural factors that make it harder to score cough points if you're a practice in a deprived area, or perhaps make it harder to do well at the kind of tick boxes of the CQC inspection. But I think we'd be unwise to discount that those three factors all stack up as general practice performing less well in deprived areas. So if we look across those three, you've got higher need in areas of high deprivation. But in 2020, in general practice in England, unfortunately, I suspect it's still the case now in 2021. We just did the research last year. We know that you have underfunding, underdoctoring, and quite possibly lower quality of general practice in the areas where we need it most. I think that that is a kind of real indictment of, on our health system. And we can talk a lot of talk about challenging health inequalities, but I think unless you provide healthcare services in proportion with need, it's very difficult to see how you actually effectively tackle health inequality. Yeah, you um, eloquently explained that and um, yeah, beautifully. So thank you. I, I wanted to ask you a bit about funding because funding was a, sort of a big part of what you've just said. And a lot of it in general practice, we, we often come back to the car health formula and the complicated. Um, someone once told me that um, funding GP is like getting a load of tester pots and um, trying to paint your house with a load of tester pots. So I know funding comes from all sorts of places, but the car health formula is a big aspect of that. And I'd be really interested to hear kind of your take on the car health formula and what might need to change and the funding of general practice going forward. Sure. Is it helpful to rewind a bit and cover a bit about what Carhill is? Bearing in mind your analogy of tester points, tester pots, which I think is a great one. I mean, so confusingly, people will hear Carhill called the global sum formula as well. It means the same thing. And it's been used as the basis of poor practice funding for practices on GMS and most PMS contracts since 2004. So basically, most general practices in England get their money via the Carhill formula. The idea is that if all GP populations had equal need and if cost didn't vary across the country, you could just pay people per person that they had on their list. But of course, that's not the case. And the cost of providing healthcare varies across the country too. So the intention of the Carhill formula is to weight um, these factors to try and take some of them into account. So the basic idea is that a practice is paid per patient with a weight attached to each patient that accounts for the workload associated with the different factors that determine cost. And so Carhill is the formula that was, that's used to do that. And it was developed in the late 1990s by Roy Carhill and others. And it was adopted in the GP contract of 2004. And it crucially, it hasn't been changed since then. 
The other thing that is really important to understand about Carhill is that although it does try and adjust for different factors that determine workload, so for example, the age and the sex of patients, the cost of employing staff in an area, how rural the practice is, it doesn't include any adjustment for the workload associated with deprivation. And that's really important because it leads to the situation that we have where, which is that practices don't really get recognition for whether or not they're in a deprived area. And so, for example, a study done by the University of Leicester a couple of years ago showed that for every 10% increase in IMD score that a practice is in, practice payments only increase by 0.06%. So basically, there's no weighting in the formula for deprivation. Now, that problem has been recognised for a long time. It was formally recognised in 2007 when a review group asked by the government to review the formula looked at it and said well no it doesn't adequately adjust for deprivation it should do they recommended that IMD scores be included in the weightings but for reasons we can go into if we want that's never happened and there have been successive promises that it would happen um, in 2008 and very explicitly in the GP forward view but before that in the NHS five-year forward view as well and in several other policy documents between those. There's been this consistent promise that Carhill will be changed because we recognise that it's not quite good enough at, at waiting for deprivation, and it hasn't. So there we still are. And if we just think about some of those other kind of tester pots that you had, so lots of general practice income comes through Carhill, over 50%, but there are other income streams for general practices, and they include COF, which includes, which accounts for about 10%, but remember that we've already said that GP practices in deprived areas tend to do less well on COF. So that's another source of discrepancy. And then actually, if we look at other pots of money, like, for example, the pots of money that practices can get from their CCGs for locally enhanced services, when you do the maths on those, funnily enough, what we see is that those payments tend to be predominantly towards affluent practices as well. So when you look across your different pots, Almost every pot will skew towards giving money to practices in affluent areas over practices in deprived. And so the sum of them is the figure that we're reporting at the foundation, which is, you know, the once you adjust for need, you get 7% less funding in the deprived area. Thank you, Bex. That's really helpful. Is it just politics that the reason this hasn't this hasn't happened? So it's great that in terms of policy, and I know this is something you work on, is the policy around this. And if, if we're making policy, which is saying that these things need to change, what is it that is actually stopping this from actually happening and the changes actually going through? It's such a great question, Rachel. I think it depends how widely you define politics in your answer, because frankly, it's medical politics. A lot of the time, it's our profession. So the most concrete example of this is actually from 2008. So the Formula Review Group reported in 2007, published a big long report saying, you know, this is what we think about Carhill and here's how it could be improved. And it was left up to negotiations between the BMA and what was then NHS employers to decide how to do that. And the BMA put it to a vote through LMCs. And essentially GPs voted not to adopt a revised version of Carhill. And the reason for that was because it would have been meant redistribution of funds. It would have meant that some practices lost out and other practices gained. It would have meant that specifically practices in more deprived areas gained. And GPs voted against that. It's very difficult to know because it's not in the public domain 
why subsequent promises to redo Carhill haven't been enacted. But I think we have to be aware that the profession hasn't been supportive of them in the past. My personal perspective is that there are there's a couple of ways around that. And one good equivalent to think of is the CCG allocation formula. So we're talking with Carhill about money direct to practices, but of course, government also distributes money to local areas. And they made a change to the, the formula that does that in 2016, I think it was. And when they did that, it meant there was some redistribution. Some areas were going to get more money and other areas got less. But they recognised that wouldn't be popular. You can't really take money away from places or give them less than you said you were going to over the next few years. So what you do is you give everybody more money, but you give some people more money faster. I would strongly argue that you could do the same in general practice. So you could get rid of that winners and losers effect. You could redo Carhill. And if you put more money into the system as a whole, everybody gets the same money as they had, doesn't get taken away, but some people get more money faster. Now, I think an important point just to mention about Carhill is that there are other reasons for redoing it, not just deprivation. I would really hope that a better version of the formula did redistribute money more equally between areas that are more or less affluent. But there are other methodological improvements that I think that we could make on a formula that is now approaching 25 years old in terms of the kind of academic methods that we're able to go into it. So, for example, the way that the workload adjustment is done in the formula is just by looking at file opening times. I think we can probably be a bit more nuanced in how we would approach that now. So there are other reasons beyond just deprivation for redoing a funding formula for general practice. But we do have to be aware that when you change funding formula, you change who gets how much money. That's not always popular. And so that's where the politics comes in. The politics you know, in terms of our medical political community of making it acceptable to people, but also the big P politics, because fundamentally that's in the hand of government and the treasury. If they were willing to put a bit more money in so you get rid of that winners and losers effect, I think we could make real progress. Yeah, that's really interesting, Bex, and trying to find a solution kind of where every, everyone's happy and no one's losing out. And I really, I really like that. It's interesting because that kind of brings in the role of the GP as an advocate. And we talk about GP being advocate in a, in a number of previous podcast episodes. And it's interesting because it, in my mind, you talking about that then made me think, what's your role in trying to think up new solutions in which is keeping everyone happy or kind of the art of persuasion in the sense of showing evidence and data of actually what's, go- what's going on and hang on. Why was why why were GPs not voting at the LMC to change the Carhill formula? Do we have a role to persuade our colleagues that, that actually we do need to revise this, or do we need to find other solutions? And I, I suppose there's perhaps a bit of both there. But it, it's so interesting, isn't it? It's kind of the balance between the complete pragmatist and the idealist, and how far you can go between one and the other. Because I appreciate we all have different worldviews, different political views. People may not share my, you know, I have an inherent view. I wonder whether you do too, that this is not fair. It's not just, and therefore we should change it. But colleagues clearly don't all feel similarly. And so you have to think, well, how, not just how do I persuade them, but how do I persuade them in, in language that is actually going to work? And I think 
the backdrop to all this, which is really important to acknowledge, I think, for all of us in general practice, is that general practice as a whole, I would argue, has been underfunded, particularly for the last 10 years. So nobody is feeling flush. Nobody is feeling like they're twiddling their thumbs at work, getting, you know, lots of recompense for doing not a lot. Everybody is feeling under pressure. And general practice is a phenomenally efficient part of the health service. We do an awful lot for very little relative funding, less than 10% of total NHS budget. And that's intended to increase, but it's now very difficult to do the maths around COVID funding. We have to meet people where they are and acknowledge that the broader political context plays a massive role here too. So nobody's feelings are invalid. For somebody like me who tries to persuade, it's, I think it's really important to hear different perspectives, try to understand them and try to work out, okay, well, you know, how do I work with that? And what is the pragmatic offer? And I think particularly at the moment with this government, my pitch to them really is that this is a vital part of levelling up. And when we look at the communities that are most affected by this, they align with some of the communities who are part of government's much broader levelling up strategy. I don't see how you can level up without levelling up healthcare. And so levelling up general practice and universe care law, I think, is it has to be integral to that. Yeah, that's interesting. And I suppose it's your aligning your thinking onto what government strategy is, is doing in the, in the current moment. Yeah, which is a good idea. Yeah, um, back in the heady days of the end of 2019 and early 2020, pre-pandemic, I actually thought there was a window for some real action on this because we had a government who for the first time in nine years then were talking about spending instead of austerity and they were talking about levelling up and I thought as I've just said oh oh, great you know there might be a lever in here and then Covid happened and so some of the early conversations I had been having about willingness to potentially spend that money I was talking about to get rid of the winner and losers effect it all got kind of buried and under an avalanche of pandemic and that's understandable, but as we all know only too well, the pandemic has only increased health inequalities, amplified the need to do something about this. And I worry that focus has shifted away from some of the core changes that are not easy to do, but will have to happen if we're serious about shifting health inequalities in the next few years. Yeah, oh, it's, it's interesting, the, the COVID situation in how it has shone a light really on health inequalities particularly um within that first wave it was really really apparent and there was a lot of media chat and a lot of government chat around the fact that that was happening i don't know about you but i feel like that's reduced a little bit definitely it's also the challenge of kind of the well as we can see over the last few weeks a lot of reactive work particularly in primary care um rather than kind of having being able to be um kind of proactive and hopefully, I'm hoping when we, when and if we ever emerge out of all of this, um, we can take some of that 2019-2020 window um, and hopefully see that again with um, the light that's been shone with COVID as well. And following on from kind of um, the 10 years on Marmot report as well, hopefully we can start to pick up a bit of that as well. Yeah, I hope you're right, Rachel. I think a couple of things have shifted and I wouldn't want us to feel overly pessimistic because I think... Number one, we have got more evidence. There are people like me, colleagues all over the country, trying very hard to make the case for the you know, 
to demonstrate the persistence of the inverse care law and to talk about what we could be doing about it and why there's an imperative to act. And simultaneously, I think we do have more of a focus on health inequalities, both in terms of national focus from NHS England, um, though I would argue that you have to change the structural things as well as you know, talking about what can be done locally, um, because otherwise you're effectively asking the people who, who have the least to do the most. And I think that's very problematic. Um, but there is, yeah, I think you're right, more of an awareness of health inequalities. Um, and I don't know how that has trickled down into our profession. And I get asked, you know, would the profession vote the same way on Carhill again? And I don't know. And perhaps I'm slightly optimistic in saying, I think things might have changed. I think there is more awareness now. But I hope there is. I don't know whether you feel that too. It's, it's hard, isn't it? We talked before, where you said before about kind of the value of fairness. And I think it is something that we both share. And it's it's difficult when you have a value, isn't it? To, um but yeah, well, it's really important to make sure that you um, realise that other people have different values to your own, but it's difficult to, um, yeah, when you feel something so deep down and entrenched, it's difficult to imagine someone else doesn't feel like that as well. But yeah, it's, as you say, meeting people halfway and um, is really important. Bex, I'm really, I'm really interested because I think about this quite a lot and I suppose you working um at a policy level is something that I imagine you have to think about a little bit and I know for you in the Health Foundation tackling the inverse care law is, is such a big part of that role do you ever feel like you're kind of banging a health inequality drum and you you feel like you perhaps need to kind of I wouldn't I would never say this about you but would you ever feel like you um I don't, I don't know so going on about it too much and maybe need to dumb that down a little bit or even just yeah kind of step back a little bit and take a different approach I can I separate your question out into two parts Rachel because uh I think about this a lot of course I do because I reflect on fundamentally am I doing my job well and could I be doing it better if the first part of this is are we banging the drum too much I feel like the answer to that is no. You know, when I interrogate, is this the right drum to be banging? You know, do we care? Is the inverse care law real? Yes. Should something be done about it? Yes. Is the organisation I work for in a position to try and make a contribution to doing that? Yes. And should we? Yes. I feel like those things are very clear to me. And I suppose the final thing is, is this something that I want to do, even though, of course, there are days where I just feel like I'm slamming my head into a brick wall. I think we all have those. I still wake up feeling very motivated and privileged to do the work that I do. But the second part of it is, could I be doing this better? What are the different avenues? How do we influence better? What is the most impactful next piece of work that I can do? You know, when I step back from the work that we organisationally have been doing over the last couple of years and think about the work that others have been doing, what are the gaps that I can identify? How do we fill them? Who are the people who I've not spoken to? What are the audiences we're not reaching? Those are all very live questions for me. So to summarise part one, yes, I absolutely think this is the right thing to be taking on. I think health inequalities matter hugely. I want to spend my career working on them. I'm delighted that the Health Foundation shares that interest and is somewhere 
that enables me to do this work that could, could I and could we be doing it better inevitably yes and thinking about how we do that better and trying to do it better is a core part of of my work too I really like the way you think about it as kind of a almost a team approach to this it's not just an individual response and you said that right at the start and I think I think that's really important to realize is kind of who who are your allies in this and who can help you and who, who do you need to seek out to find out more to learn more and um try and find some of the solutions and yeah I think that's I think that's great Bex I'm just interested what what is it that makes you so interested in all of this is there something personal or is there anything have you always felt like this I know you said you started thinking about the inverse care law at medical school it's a very good question. I don't think I have a simple, pithy answer for you, Rachel. I <laughs> think that for me, it's part socialisation. I was brought up by parents who had a strong sense of social justice. I went to protests as a very small child. Um, I grew up talking about this type of thing at home and have always cared about it and felt it to be very important it probably sounds very trite to say, you know, I have a huge amount of privilege and I would like to commit and like to do what I can to use that wisely and, and share it, platform others um, and do work to try and change some of the structural injustice. It just so happens that for me, healthcare is my chosen route that does probably relate to some things from very you know when I was much younger and family illness and you know I'm the only doctor in my family the others are all much wiser um but for me the 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 avenue is through it through healthcare and therefore health inequalities and I also find it hugely intellectually interesting and fulfilling work and I think particularly the combination I don't want to go about on about this too much but general practice is a very hard job but it's also an enormously privileged and humbling job and I really enjoy it I get to meet so many interesting people and being able to pair that with policy work is yeah for me it's kind of living the dream job I suppose I feel very lucky yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember, Bex, the first time I met you and heard about some of the stuff you're doing, it was a massive inspiration. I was like, wow. You have, well, we talked about this before, such amount of credibility in having a foot on the ground as a GP, but then you kind of um, can bring that to your health foundation role. Are there any other benefits you could think you can bring to the policy stuff as a GP? Yes, but it's always something I'm wary of. So I remember being quite surprised when I first started doing policy work at the relative lack of clinicians in those circles. What I'm therefore wary of is the amplification of those voices um, in a disproportionate way. So just to be a bit clearer about what I'm meaning, I will not infrequently be in meetings where I am the only clinician and I might be asked for an opinion, a perspective. There are always alarm bells for me in those conversations. And I always want to very much caveat my personal experience as not the only perspective or experience. And so like, yes, I think that clinicians can bring a lot into these different fora, but I think that there is a responsibility on those of us who are sitting at those tables to also be very clear that we are not representative and also to think about how you can get you know is there an opportunity to get more representative voices into those rooms I don't know if that makes sense it definitely does and that's it's, I think that's really hard we were doing this a bit before we started recording is 
I, I talk a lot to other GPs about their experiences and partly that's a personal, it's kind of a personal reassurance thing, isn't it? When things are really hard at work, for example, you talk to people in other surgeries and your friends and you think, oh yeah, okay, we are actually all having similar experiences. Or you might do it in a more, you might do it because you're trying to solve a problem and you know that another practice does it differently. But I definitely talk to other GP friends and colleagues to try and understand their perspectives and how they might influence my kind of policy thinking or the questions I get asked in the policy world but I also do that on a much more personal level to help reassure me I suppose that what I am experiencing is is not just me um, and what we are going through in general practice at the moment is a collective not just an individual experience yeah 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 and that's so important from a kind of morale and support and kind of um, yeah, day to day, just feeling like you're working with colleagues and in a team. It's just so important, isn't it? Can I flip the question I asked you before as well? Because I was asking you about what you brought to your GP role from the Health Foundation role. But I'd be really interested to know what are the practical things you could apply from your Health Foundation role as a GP? It's a great question. In some ways, I suspect I'm not best placed to answer it. I think it's one of those what's it like to be on the receiving end of me questions that would be probably best asked to my practice manager or colleagues. I think actually there's something fundamental about me not being a policy person in general practice. And what I mean by that is that when I am in general practice, I'm just a GP to my patients. That's what I want to be. I have quite firm boundaries for myself about not doing any policy work on general practice days and I know this isn't quite what you were meaning but in a very practical sense you know I think it's really important to be 100% present <laughs> um, for my patients and that with patients I am there as their GP um, and I'm not a partner in my practice I work as a salaried GP I always have done so I'm not involved in practice management, but I do talk to and share with my partner colleagues bits of insight from policy world. And particularly, I guess, for example, when PCNs were first being set up and I was thinking about, well, OK, what does that mean for general practice or now? What does the care bill mean for general practice? So what's going to happen with ICSs? What is representation of general practice going to be at place level? Those are all conversations I have with interested colleagues. but. Not everybody is interested in the broader policy picture. And so there's probably not as much overlap as one might imagine that there would be. There certainly is, though, on the deprivation stuff, because I work in an area that is quite homogeneously very deprived. And so all of the things that we talk through at the top of the pod, all of the underfunding, underdoctoring, recruitment problems, uh, the Health Foundation just funded some work that was done by the University of Manchester that looked at GP turnover, which has got higher across the country in the last 10 years, but it's particularly a problem in areas of high deprivation. And I, we've definitely experienced that at our practice. It's very difficult to retain GPs, and then it's very hard to recruit GPs to replace the ones that you've lost. So with the kind of equity work in particular, there are very clear overlaps. Yeah, yeah, that's so interesting, Beg. So thank you. Yeah, I could chat to you about this all day, but um, unfortunately, I know we both can't do that. So I'm going to move on to our last few questions to finish. So Bex, if you had one book or resource you'd recommend to someone who's interested in health inequalities, um, what would that one resource be? Such a stumper of a question, isn't it? If you didn't have very long, 
I would say go and have a quick read of Julian Tudor Hart's original paper. I think it was February 1971 in The Lancet. It's called The Inverse Care Law. It starts with the line that everybody quotes, as I did earlier in the podcast, about the availability of good medical care. But actually, it's a paper about the impact of market forces in healthcare. I found it hugely influential. And I think it's a shame that at medical school, we only learn the top line. Yeah, I, I really like that, Bex, because actually I was doing a lot of health inequalities stuff and it took me a good few years to go and actually sit and, oh, me too. and um, go and actually read the whole paper. And when I did, I was like, oh, I should have read about this earlier. <laughs> exactly the same experience. It's not behind the so you can actually get to it. Um, and I mean, there are so many fantastic books about health inequalities and um, that people can read but that paper I think is just so seminal and it's short and it's accessible I'd really recommend reading it yeah thanks Bex I love that and Bex I'm giving you one magic genie wish to tackle health inequalities you can have anything you like gosh I should have listened to everyone else's I'm sure they're much better this is going to demonstrate a real lack of imagination as well because I'm going to assume that the genie is kind of a pragmatist so I'm going to ask the genie to get this government to make addressing the inverse care law in general practice an explicit national priority. Because when governments make things priorities, they should make them happen and they should measure them happening. So behind that wish, there's going to need to be the action I'd love to see on levelling up funding in general practice and making workforce distribution more equitable. So that's my ask of the genie. I will have a chat with the genie and see whether they can fulfil your wish. And I really you and I may be chatting to and about this genie for many years to come. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh well, Bex, thank you so much. Really enjoyed chatting to you. It's been yeah, absolutely brilliant hearing your insights. As always, thank you for joining us on the podcast. Oh, Rachel, it's such a pleasure. Thank you very much for having me on. Okay. Well, take care. Bye. Thanks for listening, everyone. I really hope you enjoyed this episode. Further podcast episodes, modules, blog posts and more educational resources are available on the Fair Health website at www.fairhealth.org.uk. If you enjoyed the episode, please do subscribe so you're updated when we release more episodes. It's always lovely to hear from you and thank you for all the comments and feedback we've had about the podcast over the last few years. Please get in touch via Twitter at FairHealthUK or at RMSteam. We're really looking forward to you joining us next time on our journey to finding fair health.